Americans love wilderness survival shows. Maybe you have your favorite. Among the pioneers of this television genre is Man vs. Wild. This, uh, this show stars Bear Grylls. Bear is not his real name. It's a nickname. I found that out. Uh, in this show, Bear takes on different terrain and different elements, and he shows his viewers how to survive in them. If you look up Man vs. Wild on YouTube, you will find Bear doing some crazy things. Headlines of videos include Bear Grylls eats sheep meat in an Icelandic hot spring. Bear Grylls goes rabbit hunting with a stick. Bear Grylls even walks across volcanic lava to eat a beehive. Bear Grylls is crazy. (laughs) What is Bear's secret to surviving in the wilderness? Well, in 2006, one of his secrets was exposed. A crew member from Man vs. Wild confessed that the show often portrays Bear being alone and helpless, but... He's not alone, and the crew actually helps him. He's often helped by special effects. He's often helped by the other production team from the crew. Even on one episode, it portrayed Bear as being uh, stranded on a deserted island. But in fact, that island was a Hawaiian island, and Bear went to a hotel every night. Well, today we begin to read of a wilderness survival story, but this one isn't a ruse. There's no hidden behind the scenes tricks. No, it's actually thousands of people trying to survive together in the wilderness as they are on their way from Egypt to the promised land, their new home. Today in the book of Numbers, God's people take their first steps from the wilderness of Sinai to the land of Canaan. And there is a vast wilderness in between them. So what will it take to survive? Well, today we'll see the first part of their journey, and it will show us a little bit of how they will survive in this wilderness. And this first part of their journey spans from Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, to Numbers chapter 12, verse 16. Just give you an overview of all these chapters in chapter 10. They start off really well. They start off in faith. But then in chapters 11 and 12, They continue in unbelief. And as we go through those chapters, we'll see really three instances of unbelief. We'll see a complaint, a craving, and a coup. Now, as we trace and follow them along their first steps of their journey, we'll we'll get to gather some wilderness survival tips. How they would survive in the wilderness and, in fact, how we will survive in our wilderness. Because as it'll be clear later on, brothers and sisters, we are called sojourners and strangers, exiles on the earth. We who have been delivered from sin are not yet to the promised land of heaven. And so this earthly life is like a wilderness. So how will we survive? Well, we'll see some from Numbers 10 through 12. So if you're not yet there, not there yet, turn with me to Numbers chapter 10. Uh, Look with me at verse 11. If you're new to the Bible, this is a good place to be. The chapter numbers are the big, bold numbers on the page. Verse numbers are the little numbers after that. Uh, So numbers chapter 10, you'll find it on page 118, and the Bible's provided. So follow along as I read verses 11 to 13. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, 
And the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. So in verse 11, we get another timestamp. And if we put the timestamps we've gotten in numbers together so far, what's happening here is happening 20 days after the book started. So in these 20 days, which we covered really last week, in these 20 days, Israel has taken a census of their army and they have celebrated the Passover. And notice from Numbers 10, verses 11 to 13, notice where they are. They're leaving Sinai. They've been in this place for just about a year. And in Bible time, they've been in this place since uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 19. So from Exodus 19 through the end of Exodus, through all of Leviticus, through the first part of Numbers, they're at Sinai. While they're at Sinai, Moses gets to go up to the mountaintop and they build the tabernacle, this tent where God will dwell among them. And then they receive God's law that tells them how they will live as God's people. That's what happens at Sinai. Now they are ready to leave. They take their first steps. So this whole second half of chapter 10, it's it's very valiant. It reads like a regal chapter. Israel is on the march. They are in obedience to the Lord. This is Israel at their best. And if there's any verse, if there's any phrase that sums up chapter 10, I think we read it at the very end of verse 13. Look back there with me. Numbers 10, verse 13. It says, they set out for the first time at the command of the Lord. So if you continue to read this chapter, uh, you'll find that God has told them to move when the pillar of cloud moves, and that's what they do. You'll find that God has told them to march in a certain way that we saw last week, and that's what they do. So what will it take for them and for us to survive in the wilderness? Well, in chapter 10, we find our very first wilderness survival tip, and that is to survive in the wilderness. It will take obedience to God's word. To survive in the wilderness, it will take obedience to God's word. You may have heard me tell this story before. If so, you'll get to hear it again. Um, When I was in driving school, my uh, instructor, who I think was there on community service, so that tells you a little bit, uh, my instructor told us that he taught his niece to drive. And he told her that all the stop signs that have white borders around them are actually optional. I don't know if he knew that. Um, Well, friend, that's not true, because if you pay attention, they all have white borders around them. Uh, But she ended up running a stop sign and getting a ticket because of that. This made me think, could you imagine if no one obeyed traffic laws? Maybe you say, I can't imagine that. I drive on 480 every day. But conversely, could you imagine if everyone carefully obeyed all traffic laws. Could you imagine that? Just think about that for a second. If everyone obeyed all traffic laws, do you know how many less accidents there would be? And seriously, do you know then how many less people would die on the roads? So for as much as you and I don't like a lot of traffic laws, they provide good restrictions, good guardrails in order to protect us and in order to allow us to flourish. And the same really works for God's law and God's commands. You and I might not like them, but they restrict our destructive tendencies. They protect us. They help us flourish. Brothers and sisters, even when you don't realize it, obedience to God's word matters. 
When it seems unfair, remember that it is for your good. I'm struck by how verse 13 in Numbers chapter 10 says, they set out for the first time, the first time. I think probably somewhere there's a throw pillow out there that has stitched on it a phrase like, every new journey begins with one step. And you know, for as cheesy and cliche as that is, it's actually true. My friend, if if you're here, you don't consider yourself to be a Christian. It's so good to have you here. Your first step of obedience to God is to turn from trusting in yourself, to turn from following yourself, and to trust in and follow God's son, Jesus Christ. That is your first step of obedience to God. And friend, this is not just a matter of preference. This isn't something that you, you can say, well, hey, that, that's okay that it works for you. That's cool. This something else works fine for me. No, this is a matter of obedience. God does not just invite. God has commanded all people everywhere to repent from their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So friend, if you haven't taken that step, please talk to me or talk to someone near you today about taking that first step of obedience. So back to Numbers 10, Israel is on the march. By the end of the chapter, we get a little peek behind the curtain of Moses' heart. Moses interacts with his brother-in-law. His name is Hobab. Who is uh, Hobab is not Jewish, but he's been a part of their camp. Now, Hobab wants to return to his home, but Moses urges him to stay. And Moses makes a really compelling case to Hobab. Look at the end of verse 29. Moses tells his brother-in-law, come with us. And we will do good to you, for the Lord has promised good to Israel. You know, I think here Moses is remembering God's promise to Abraham. God promised that the blessing that he would give Abraham and his descendants would actually spill over to the nations that were surrounding Abraham's descendants. So they wouldn't just stop with Abraham and his people. And if you skip to the end of chapter 10, we find more of Moses' heart more of Moses' confidence. Verses 35 and 36 says, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. So if Moses and the Israelites start off in obedience, then here is the fuel for their obedience. And then here is also our second wilderness survival tip. To survive in the wilderness, your obedience must be fueled by a trust in God's goodness. Your obedience must be fueled by a trust in God's goodness. Friends, the wrong fuel will make you sputter out in the wilderness. I'm reminded of uh, how Michael Scott learned this the hard way. And the Dunder Mifflin Scranton Meredith Palmer Memorial Celebrity Rabies Awareness Pro-Am Fun Run Race for the Cure. (laughs) Michael Scott's preferred fuel for the race was an entire plate of fettuccine Alfredo. Needless to say, he sputtered out and collapsed in the middle of the race because the right fuel matters. Now, lightheartedness aside, Moses' fuel for his obedience was a trust in God's goodness. You know, good advice I've heard for parenting is that rules without relationship equals rebellion. We can know that even better than Moses knew that. 
Through his son, God has already established a relationship with us. So our fuel to obey him is not to earn his love. Our fuel to obey him is because he already loves us so much. If you believe that God is malicious and not gracious, if you believe that God is stingy, not generous, my friend, then that is the fastest way to justify listening to yourself instead of listening to him. It's the fastest way to say, well, why is God worth listening to anyway? If he withholds from me, if if I don't trust that he's good. You know, Jesus himself understood how crucial this fuel was. He talks about it all the time. Matthew 7, verse 11. He urges us, friends, don't you believe that your father knows how to give good gifts to those who ask him? That our heavenly father knows what we need even before we ask. Trust in God's goodness fuels our obedience. Now, if only the book of Numbers ended with chapter 10, verse 36, and then we just get the tagline, and then the Israelites lived happily ever after. Well, no, that's not what happens. They, continue, they start off in faith, but they continue in unbelief. As they continue in unbelief, we'll see three different examples of it. We'll see a complaint, we'll see a craving, and we'll see a coup. The complaint comes in chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. Follow along as I read it. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. As Israel steps away from Sinai, they step into what would have been the harshest conditions on their entire journey. And it doesn't take long for them to complain. Here in Numbers 11, 1 to 3, it establishes a pattern for us, sort of a cycle that will repeat several times throughout the book of Numbers. It starts with the people complaining. It continues with the Lord kind of punishing. Then Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel. The Lord relents, and then the place is named to recall the incident. Right here in this complaint, Numbers 11, 1 to 3, we get at least two more wilderness survival tips. This is wilderness survival tip number three. If they were to survive in the wilderness, if we are to survive in the wilderness, you need to be ready for suffering. To survive in the wilderness, you need to be ready for suffering. Now, I'm I'm phrasing that very deliberately. And I know some of this, some of us need this tip more than others do. Some of us are very acquainted with suffering. I'm not saying that you should long for suffering as if we should find it pleasant. Neither am I saying that you should dread suffering as if suffering is some invincible enemy. I'm saying that you need to be ready for it. The Israelites were not ready for it. You know, pretty much the first time that following the Lord got hard, they complained. My friend, if you take the first step of obedience to turn from yourself and to turn to Jesus today, well, we praise God. But let me tell you that your next steps will be hard. But Jesus is honest that following him won't be easy, but he also says it will be worth it. 
We need to be ready for suffering. I wonder, have have any of you heard of the recent phenomenon called glamping? Have you heard of glamping before? If you haven't heard of it, it doesn't take much to imagine what it is. It's a combination of glamorous and camping. It seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? These things don't seem to go together. If you look up glamping.com, you'll find a definition. It says glamping is where stunning nature meets modern luxury. See, when you glamp, you have this tent in the middle of the woods, and it looks like you have a regular bed. You sometimes have electricity, running water. You have what looks like a normal living room, maybe even designed by Martha Stewart. What's the point of all of this? The point is, you'll have a very hard time surviving in the wilderness if all you know and all you expect is a glamping experience. Friends, I wonder if that's our default mindset. As Christians, again, we are called sojourners in the wilderness. God has delivered us from sin, and this life on earth is our journey to the promised land of heaven. And most of us expect our wilderness journey to be a glamping experience. We want luxury and wilderness. We want comfort while we camp. And this undermines our readiness for hardship and suffering. And I think Christians have always struggled to have this readiness, always struggled to fight against this glamping mindset and desire. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We should be ready for suffering. Now, what does it mean to be ready for suffering? Does that mean we forsake all modern comforts and conveniences and just live off the land? No, I don't think it means that. But I do, I do think it means that we should at least be aware of how comfort and convenience affects our hearts and our desires. And maybe being ready for suffering means that we should be willing to live more modestly, maybe travel lighter on our sojourn, Maybe it means watching that we don't overly depend on comfort and convenience so that we take comfort most deeply in the Lord and not in our stuff. Maybe it means holding our our comforts and conveniences with an open hand. Friends, if we are so accustomed to comfort, suffering will hit very hard. And we won't be ready to hold on to God in the midst of it because we treasure our comfort more than we treasure the Lord. Now, reflecting on Israel's complaint, Numbers 11, 1 to 3. We find another wilderness survival tip. This is number four overall. To survive in the wilderness, you need a mediator. You need a mediator. So when God's anger, it says, is kindled against them, look back at Numbers 11. What do the Israelites go directly to God? Who do they go to? They go to, that's right, they go to Moses. Moses goes in their place on their behalf. This isn't the first time Moses does it. This won't be the last time Moses does it. It just gets me thinking. Friend, this description, Numbers 11, verse 1, of God kindling his anger. Is that description of God included in what you think of who God is? God kindling his anger. Now, I I don't want you to misunderstand Um, The Bible says that God is holy. The Bible says that God is love. 
Nowhere does the Bible say God is anger. But if God is pure and if God loves, then he must stand strongly against sin. That's because sin causes damage. That's because sin goes against the, great, the greatest good, which is ultimately his own glory. You know, one of the clearest instances of when God tells us what he's like is when he tells Moses back in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. God reveals himself there as a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That picture of God presents us a dilemma. It's the same dilemma that we see here in Numbers 11. How can God both forgive and not clear the guilty? How can God do both of those things? It's because God provides a mediator. And he provides one that's even greater than Moses. Even while we were still sinning against him, God provided his own son. Because Jesus is truly God and lived a sinless life, he is able to bear the full weight of God's right anger against our sin. Because Jesus is truly man, he can stand genuinely in our place and go on our behalf. So now that the Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If you are to survive in the wilderness, you need to trust this mediator, Jesus Christ. While the Israelites don't learn their lesson after their complaint, they continue in their unbelief, and the next instance of it is a craving. This spans for the rest of chapter 11. So just let your eyes glaze over the rest of chapter 11. Let me summarize what's going on here. It seems like a loud contingent called a rabble, maybe the first rabble rousers, a loud contingent of Israelites spark a new outcry in the camp. They don't crave food in general. What they're craving is food in variety. They have food. They have manna, which we're reminded of. They crave the variety that they used to have when they lived in Egypt. You see, the Israelites lived in a place called Goshen, the most fertile place in this desert country. So they have this manna, which we're reminded is a miraculous food. But these guys are tired of carbs. They want meat. So then in verse 10... Moses continues this cycle that we've seen already. He steps in on their behalf. Although this time when Moses steps in, he doesn't really ask God for help. Moses also complains to the Lord. He says, God, this, this people are just too much for me. This job is too hard. If you really love me, you've got to take me out. <laughs> well, God answers both outcries from the people and from Moses. God provides, but his provision doubles as discipline. Yes, he'll provide meat, but the meat will become loathsome to them. So much that in verse 20, it says it will come out of their nostrils. This could mean that he would provide so much quail that the birds would die and rot quicker than they could gather and eat them so that the stench would become loathsome to them. God provides help for Moses, but it doubles as discipline. The Holy Spirit that rests on Moses God gives to 70 other men who can help carry the load that he carries. 
Moses receives this provision and he is thankful, even when his assistant Joshua tells him that these new leaders are threatening his position. The rest of the people, on the other hand, they receive God's provision. They're not thankful. They are greedy. God provides an unbelievable amount of meat, but in verse 32, there are people who gather all day and all night. They treat this stuff like people treated toilet paper back in 2020. <laughs> Some gather 10 homers. This is not 10 homer Simpsons. This, is, this would be equivalent to 60 gallons of meat. What are you going to do with that much meat without a freezer? I don't know. So because of this greed, God brings a plague on the people who had this greedy craving. Now, for those of you who expected a book that's called Numbers to be dull and boring, I bet you didn't expect stuff like this. From this instance of craving, we learn more about how to survive in the wilderness. So I think we can get at least four more wilderness survival tips just from this section. This is wilderness survival tip number five, to survive in the wilderness for them and for us. If we are to survive, it will take gratitude. It will take gratitude. Instead of gratitude, what did the Israelites have? They had grumbling. We're even told where their grumbling comes from. It seems to come from a rewritten version of history and it comes from a blindness to God's grace. Look again at Numbers 11 verse five. They say, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Look carefully at that statement. Knowing who Israel is, is anything about that inaccurate? How about the part that says that cost nothing? Did they forget that they were slaves in Egypt? So not just a rewritten version of history that causes a grumbling, it's also a blindness to God's grace. Look at verse six. They say, there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Manna. You mean the stuff that miraculously falls from the sky every day so that you don't go hungry. Listen, I like a variety in my diet as well, but they were blind to how gracious God was to provide for them. My friend, If you placed your grumbling under a microscope and peered in, the elements you would see crawling around that dish are the same elements here. You would see a rewritten version of history. You would see your blindness to God's grace. The New Testament warns us constantly in light of Israel's grumblings. Philippians 2 verse 14 states that plainly, honestly, it's the Holy Spirit's verse that he chooses to haunt me with most often. Philippians 2.14 says this, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Now, within that instruction, I think there is space for honesty because in other parts of the Bible, God invites us to pour out our hearts to him. In other parts of the Bible, God invites us to cast our burdens on him. But brothers and sisters, when we remember the true version of history, we will remember God's faithfulness, not God's stinginess. When we keep our eyes open to see God's grace in our lives, well, then gratitude will replace grumbling. And I think here, if we just observe a little bit closer, one reason grumbling so dangerous is because grumbling is so contagious. 
It's so dangerous because it's so contagious. Grumbling, you look over the course of chapters 11 and 12, grumbling starts with this small group of people and it makes its way to infect even the highest leaders in all of Israel. Grumbling is contagious. Brothers and sisters, we should be very aware of this as a church. Grumbling is contagious. Listen, don't hear me saying it. It is okay to voice concerns. It is okay to be honest. It is okay to give constructive feedback. But we have to be really careful with how we handle that. A critical and complaining spirit can set in very easily and very quickly in a church. So here's a challenge for you today, even afterwards. Every time you're around God's people, spread gratitude, not grumbling. Tell something you're thankful for. Thankful even for the person. Thankful about our time together. Spread gratitude, not grumbling. But as a grumbling spreads to Moses, we get another wilderness survival tip. This is number six overall. If we are to survive in the wilderness, both them and us, we need to be God-centered, not self-centered. We need to be God-centered, not self-centered. You know, in Moses' so-called prayer, from verses 11 to 15, his concern is all about himself. Numbers 11, verse 11. He says, why have I not found favor in your sight? Verse 13, where am I to get meat for all this people? And you know, as Moses focuses more on himself, look at how his view of God changes. Back in chapter 10, verse 29, he assures his brother-in-law, the Lord has promised good to Israel. Here in chapter 11, verse 11, Moses asks, why have you dealt ill? Literally, why have you dealt evil with your servant? Boy, that was a quick turnaround, wasn't it? God eventually calls him out on this. Verse 23, Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Just a year ago, Moses, you saw me split the Red Sea. Moses is so preoccupied, feeling sorry for himself that he forgets who God is. He forgets what God has done. It reminds me of a quote I often share from Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane. It can help cure us from self-centeredness. He said that for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. My fellow Christian, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God can do, if you want to know what God thinks of you, don't be like Moses. Don't look first at your circumstances. Look first at the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Wilderness survival tip number seven. If you and I are to survive in this wilderness, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. God eases the burden off of Moses' shoulders by giving the spirit to 70 other men in Israel. And when that happens, these men are equipped to do what they couldn't do before. When that happens, these men, don't, these men experience a closeness to God that they hadn't before. But as this is described, as the spirit goes to these men, we get little hints that we're longing for something more. The last sentence of Numbers 11, verse 25. As soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Verse 29, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You see, if everybody had the Holy Spirit all the time, then they wouldn't need a Moses. 
They would all have new hearts. They would all have a new intimate relationship with God. Friends, what Moses longed for is now here. When Jesus died on the cross, he secured the blessing of the Holy Spirit for all those who trust in him. The Spirit dwells in our hearts, not just temporarily, but continually. The Spirit dwells not just in a select few of Christ's people, but in all of Christ's people. What does that mean for you and me? Stick with me for a minute. Someone else pointed this out to me in Numbers 11, and I can't unsee it now. What is it that the people crave? They crave quail. They crave meat. Maybe another way to put it, they crave flesh. But what is it that God provides? He provides the spirit. Not just to the elders, but notice even how God provides the quail in verse 31. Where did it come from? God sends a wind from the Lord. Wind is the same word as spirit. And not much has changed. You and I, we desire the flesh when what we need is the spirit. We want to access this power to live a new life in our own strength, in our own resolve. We develop an attitude like, I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to dig deeper. I'm just going to do more. While it's actually supposed to work, that we have the power to live a new life, we access that by faith. We remember that Jesus didn't just die to forgive us of our sins. Jesus died to deliver us from the power of sin. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us believe in that, who helps us live in that. Christian, what this means for you each and every day is that you must lean on the Spirit's work in your life. Each day you would look to the Holy Spirit as your teacher, as your guide, as your sanctifier, as your giver of assurance, as your helper in prayer, as the one who empowers you for your witness for Christ. You need the Spirit to survive in the wilderness. Wilderness survival tip number eight. To survive in the wilderness, we need God's discipline. We need God's discipline. The end of chapter 11 is actually more like God's judgment than God's discipline. In a way, it's a stern warning to those who are going their own way and rebelling against God, those who haven't taken that first step of obedience that we just talked about earlier. My friend, God will not let that rebellion go on forever. But for those who trust in Christ, there is no more condemnation, as we sang earlier. Jesus took all our judgment, and now we are God's children. But like a good father, God disciplines us. And the Bible says that discipline doesn't disprove that God loves us. It actually proves that God loves us. Just like it does for parents with their kids. Right? If your kids only, your parents want to let their kids eat fun and tasty food, yes. But if your kid only wants to eat fruit roll-ups and chicken nuggets, well, you're going to have to find a way to curb that craving and introduce a new one. That's how God's discipline often works in us. Here in Numbers 11, people's cravings end up destroying them. One reason our Heavenly Father allows trials in our lives is to curb destructive cravings in us. Right, so if you ever try to get physically healthier, if you ever try to lose weight, you know that you need discipline. You know that you need to rewire your cravings. You know that you need to establish new habits. And you know that work is often unpleasant. 
The same works for our spiritual health. It is often unpleasant, but it is crucial. The old pastor John Owen said to be killing sin or sin will kill you. But the good news is that our old selves have died. We have the spirit, so we can discipline ourselves for godliness, as Paul tells his protege, Timothy. We can lean into God's work of disciplining us. We can lean in to God's work of rewiring our cravings. We lean in by reading God's word, by praying, by gathering with God's people. These are the disciplines like diet and exercise. Through these disciplines, God rewires our cravings. While their journey to the promised land, Israel starts off in faith, but they continue in unbelief. Their unbelief shows up in a complaint. It shows up in a craving. Finally, it shows up in a coup. This is chapter 12. Now it's Moses' siblings, Miriam and Aaron, who spearhead this coup attempt. Now, to be fair, they don't outright say that they want Moses' position, but they do want more of the limelight. So follow along as I read Numbers 12, 1 to 2. It says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman, and they said, Has not the Lord, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Miriam and Aaron's initial gripe is a good lesson for us in how we handle conflicts. When people complain to you, when people are upset about a seemingly random, small item, they're probably upset about something else. It's probably some, there's probably a deeper problem that's there. Moses' siblings' complaint about his wife is just a, it's a smokescreen. It's not the real issue. Maybe just this accusation was like ammunition that they had saved for a while. Maybe, friends, you are guilty of doing the same thing, of putting things in your back pocket and bringing them out when it's convenient. To them, Moses' foreign wife was a reason Moses shouldn't have as much authority as he does, and they should have more. And we're not told all the content of their complaint. Marrying someone outside of Israel was concerning only if that person didn't worship God, because that person would drag that other person away from God. But Moses' wife did worship God, So behind their accusation, very well could be a feeling of racial or ethnic superiority. Now, this is not the main point that we're trying to make, but let me just say so it's clear. Any ethnic or racial supremacy is against the gospel. Whatever skin color, whatever ethnic background, we are all made equally in the image of God. We are all equal sinners against the holy God. And for those who trust in Christ, we are all equally children of God. Galatians 3.28 puts it like this. There is neither Jew nor Greek, and there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Anyway, what Moses and Miriam really want is recognition. They're ignoring wilderness survival to number six, to be God-centered, not self-centered. And after they voice their gripe, notice it's not Moses who defends himself, it's God who defends Moses. They claim that God speaks through them. Well, God has something to say to them, all right. God calls them to the tabernacle. He goes on to assert the unique relationship that Moses has with him. Numbers 12, verse 7, God calls Moses his servant. God says, Moses is my faithful servant. He is faithful in all my house. 
After they leave the tabernacle, Miriam turns leprous. Something happens to her skin, perhaps a little ironic given their initial complaint. And the way the grammar is set up would emphasize that Miriam is the one who led the charge against Moses. So Aaron appeals to his brother to pray for her. Aaron acknowledges Moses' position. Moses prays. Miriam's healed. The march pauses for a week. And that's chapter 12. A lot more we could say. We'll leave it at wilderness survival tip number nine. To survive in the wilderness, you must humbly submit to God's appointed servant. You must humbly submit to God's appointed servant. You know, God uses the title, my servant, with a select few individuals in the Old Testament. And it all builds toward Isaiah 53 with the suffering servant who is crushed for our iniquities and pierced for our transgressions. This suffering servant is none other than Jesus. And the book of Hebrews will quote Numbers 12, verse 7, and show us Jesus is more than just a faithful servant. He is God's faithful son. So friends, to survive in the wilderness, you must humbly submit to God's appointed servant. That means that there are two paths before you. One path is with you in charge, and the other path is with Jesus in charge. Will you be like Miriam and Aaron and claim to have authority that you don't have? You know, our world, our culture would have you do that. It would have you live by a mantra like, my story, my truth, my body, my choice. But friend, God has not spoken through you. He has spoken through Moses, and ultimately, he has spoken through his son. It is only through humble trust in him that we will have life that we cannot give to ourselves. So how will you make it through the wilderness? Well, I hope all these tips haven't conveyed that we are the heroes of the story. Because if the Israelites teach us anything, it's that if we are to hold on to the end, it won't be because of our own strength. It will be because God fulfills his promise and holds on to us. We'll sing this in just a moment. Through this dark and troubled land, you will guide me with your hand as I stand on every promise of your word. And you've promised to complete every work begun in me. So I'll stand on every promise of your word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we desperately need your grace. We need someone to stand in our place and on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need power and strength, new hearts that aren't natural to us. Holy Spirit, we need you. Our Father, we need maturing and growth as your children. We need your good and wise care. Lord, even when it's hard, help us to trust you. What if we are to survive in this wilderness? We need you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.